0: all of you. So I do it anyway. It's all good. I don't care. Uh, we've, we've. I mean, this was only our 30th Valentine's Day together, so, you know, it's all good. 26th wedding anniversary coming up here soon. Yeah, it's, it's all good. I can say probably whatever I want. It doesn't really matter at this point. <laughs> and I don't really care what you think, but that's a whole other story. Come on, people. It is, it is a beautiful, beautiful day, and uh, I'm so thankful to be in the house of the Lord. This is an exciting season as Easter season is upon us. Now, we celebrate the resurrected Savior every single time we gather, but there's something special about this time of year as we get to do this together, and, and I'm being honest, uh, I love, there's two extra things we do at the church that I genuinely love. One is, is Christmas Eve service. I love Christmas Eve service, and I'm not going to talk about Christmas other than I want to go ahead and plant this seed in your brain. Christmas is on Sunday this year. Okay? Now, there's a lot of people, well, we probably won't make it. You know, we got the kids, and we got the presents, and we got to do that. So we probably won't make it to church. I just want you to ponder what you're saying. What you're celebrating, you're not willing to... Anyway, I'll let you ponder that, but we'll talk about it more later. Uh, so Christmas Eve service, and I love, 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 love Good Friday service because of what we, because the only thing we do on that evening is focus on the thing that happened on that very evening. And yes, it was that very evening. We know exactly when this all took place on a calendar. Because we know how the Jewish Passover works. We know how it's celebrated. And that's why Easter is always moving around all over the place. And one time it'll be in the middle of March. And the other time it'll be like at the end of April. And you'll be like, what is going on? I can never figure out when Easter is. Well. That's because you're not Jewish. <laughs> okay? If you were Jewish, you would understand when Easter was. It's very specific on their calendar. All right? Um, but so excited about that. So if you haven't signed up to be part of the dinner, we understand, but please come to the service. Uh, we want as many people as possible to be part of that service. Okay? And you might even be looking around like now, I'm like, oh, well, gosh, if I invite friends and family and folks to come with me, where will they sit? Great question. There are contingency plans in place. We'll begin discussing those next week, all right? So so just know we're going to make room for whoever might come to worship with us. I told everybody on uh, this week we were talking about it, I'll be the first one to volunteer to stand. And they said... Well, you already are. And I said, well, okay, the other half the service, I'll, I'll stand then too. Um, so just, just, uh, just, just know, uh, we're, we're thinking about those things, praying through those things. Um, as a leadership, in case you didn't know this or didn't remember this coming out of COVID, uh, just talking with people and praying through this as a leadership, we believe that we are a one-service church we love each other. We want to be with each other. We want to know who's here. We want to meet everybody we can and be a part of this. And so whatever that means moving forward as the body of Christ, it means we're going to attempt at all costs to gather together as one big group of people and not separate and divide. And so we don't know exactly where God is leading us in that. That's how we're praying. That's what we're researching right now is trying to figure out exactly what God wants us to do with that. But this is who we are, and and we're not ashamed of that. Uh, we, We don't want to be like everybody else. We want to be who God has created us to be. Okay. So just know that moving forward. And so there'll be some pains and growing pains and things along the way. And that's okay. That's okay. He has a plan for us and it is a good plan. As a matter of fact, it is a great plan. And we just have to realize that. All right. So thank you for joining us. we got a lot of different people here. We've got some first-time guests here today. Please, if that's you, don't leave without gathering a gift bag on your way out. Um, we want to make sure to get that to you. we got some people visiting, haven't been here in a while. Awesome. So excited. We've got some people who haven't really been back since COVID. And so that's awesome to have you with us this morning. It's just, it's just so much fun to be here. If you've been able to join us over the last several months now, it has been an honor to help guide you on this journey through the book of Luke. When God first gave me this idea way back last summer, and I sat down and I wondered, how would this possibly work out? Luke's a big book. It's a big gospel. There is a lot in it. And so over the next few weeks, I went through all of the gospel of Luke, and I parsed it all out in the way we were going to study it, and I mashed all those texts up with weeks specific Sundays, dates. I put all that together, but then I just didn't know how's this all going to pan out, you know, in the end. Here we are, not at the end, but here we are at at Easter. It's the Easter series, and we're going to pick up right in Luke chapter 9. The last passage that we studied together two weeks ago was in Luke chapter 8. And if you were here last week and you were paying attention to the sermon, then you'll notice that Jeremy happened to preach from Luke chapter 10. No, we did not script that. No, we never had a conversation about that. That's God doing God things. It's awesome. With all the twists and the turns, studying the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist, then looking at the preparation that that Jesus went through to be ready for ministry, then we looked at all the miracles that Luke records, and now we're right in the middle of the teachings of Jesus as we pause for this Easter series, wouldn't you know, wouldn't you know that God happened to bring us to the exact right spot that we needed to be, because the way I had it all written out didn't stay. It all got shuffled and changed a few times throughout this last fall and winter season. I am always amazed at how God puts those pieces of the puzzle together to see his plan unfold before my eyes, because I'm really behind the scenes there. And I always want to make sure you understand how important it is for you to know that he is the one in control, of how all this fits together, and it is miraculous, and I just get to play a role in it, and it's so cool. So, if you haven't been with us, all of these these sermons from the book of Luke, we started back in the the beginning of September, I believe, last year. They're all online. You can catch up with all that we've done, Um, and after Easter, we're going to resume the teachings of Jesus, but then when we do that, we're going to get to do so in the light of his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm already excited. On April 24th, we'll be in Luke 9, 51. That's the text we will start with on April 24th. That text is an amazing text because it simply says this. Luke then changes what Jesus has been doing. He changes the whole direction of Jesus' ministry. It says this, as the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up into heaven, he resolutely, some texts say, set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely, we do not use that word any longer at all, he is absolutely, completely, 100% determined to get to Jerusalem, to his final destination, the cross, for you and for me. He is bent on making this sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And over the next three weeks, what we get to do is we get to join him on the final part of that journey before we back up into those teachings that happened between these two moments. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word today in this incredible gospel of Luke, I'm so thankful for him and the ministry that he had, not being one of the disciples, but Father, being someone that probably heard about you from Paul. And then devoted his entire life and his writing skills, his knowledge, his incredible intelligence to putting this work together for us to study so that we too may be certain of the things that we've been taught. Father, we love you and we thank you for your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I told you I would allude to this all the time throughout the series. Today is no different as we begin this Easter series. If you walked in the middle doors, you saw a banner there that simply said this, so that you may know so that you may know. Hopefully, you realize in the world in which you live and the people which you interact with every day, they do not know Jesus. And so it's essential that we do so that we can then share this Jesus that we know so well with them. Luke begins his book this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We explained who that was potentially at the very beginning of this series So that you and we may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, I don't know about you, but what does it mean to know something for certain? Have you ever been in a discussion with someone and you were certain that you were right until you were wrong? What does it mean to know something for certain? We've got to understand that the most famous philosophers in human history have been discussing this and debating this literally for thousands and thousands of years. Go back as far as you want. Some of the first recorded philosopher, a guy named Plato, not the stuff you play with, but the the guy named Plato, three and four hundreds B.C. And yes, I will continue to use the words letters B.C. and A.D. because. I don't like the others for lots of reasons, but the SBC, they were debating this then. This was before Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus. Aristotle, after him, one of his pupils. Aquinas in the 1200s. Descartes in the 1600s. They've been talking about what is certain forever, and people still talk about it today. Now, they always tended, well, is it dependent completely upon mathematical equations and what we call science? Now, in the world of science, we know that we're always updating and changing. So how certain is it if it gets modified? But that's all another thing. Are those the only things that we can be certain of in this world? I don't think so. I don't think so, but it really depends on your perspective as an individual. If you are of the belief that the only thing that is certain is this moment that you have right now, and the only thing that you're sure of is that you exist in this moment right now, then it's going to be pretty hard to persuade you that there's other things that you can be certain of. But that belief system is really hard to hang on to. It is really difficult to grasp because the human has been designed to think outside of ourselves. We have this uncanny way of doing this. We can actually remove ourselves completely from the current condition that we are in and dream and think and ponder about things in the way they could be if things changed. You see, God has placed something inside of us that instinctively knows there is something else out there. There is more to this life than just what we experience in this moment. And even if you choose never, ever, ever to believe in Jesus Christ, which we pray does not happen, but if you choose that path, there always will be a question. What if? What if there is a God? What if he really does exist? You see, the things that we humans crave, love, belonging the things we experience in life these things are best provided by god and anything else that we rely on fully to provide those things will fall short god alone provides these things unconditionally to us whereas humans will constantly break our hearts they'll constantly let us down and can lead us into anxiety and depression and even worse as believers, we are to help provide those specific human needs to others on behalf of God. Why? Because of his love first and foremost for us and for our love in exchange back to him. This is what we get to do, is to be his hands and feet in this world and to love people and to help people belong and feel part of a big oh, family of believers, So as we journey together to the cross and ultimately to the empty tomb, sorry, spoiler alert for three weeks from today, let what we talk about, let what we study in the book of Luke increase our certainty of the truth of Jesus, because the more certain you are about this reality, the more likely you are to tell others. Actually, the more you'll want to tell others. You will have a desire to share it with others, we pray that over these next few weeks and months and years to come, that God will just continually bring us people that have not yet been convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and that he actually did these things for them. And as we go through this series together, our prayer is continually that Luke will accomplish his stated goal to make you even more certain of the truth that you have been taught, the truth of Jesus. So today, we're going to begin in Luke 9 with two very short passages. We're also going to make a brief pit stop over in Isaiah 52. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, you can stick your finger in Isaiah, and we'll turn back there here in just a little bit. If you use your phone, go right ahead. There's Bibles underneath, chairs in front of you, whatever means you want to use. But Luke 9 is the first passage that we'll look at. Jesus' healing ministry has continued since we last were together. He sent out the 12 disciples on their own to spread the word and even to continue the healing. Now, we didn't talk about this when we talked about those miracles a while ago, but I want you to consider this. Imagine what it was like to be one of those disciples. You've traveled with Jesus for a couple of years now. You've seen him heal. You've seen him teach. You've, you've witnessed these great miracles and signs and wonders. And that day comes when now Jesus looks over his shoulder and he looks at you and said, hey, guess what? It's your turn. How did they look at Jesus when he said that? Uh, you mean you're not going with us? <laughs> like what do, you, what do you mean? We get to go. We're going to do this. Oh, Wow, what was that moment like for those men as he sent them out? I don't know. I'm just imagining what I would do. If you've ever had your boss, you know, turn over the reins to you at work, you know, gave you the keys to the whatever, and you're like, oh, I'm in charge? Oh, wow, hey, hey. a bit frightening, but maybe kind of cool. I've always wanted to do it. I don't know. I don't know how you responded to that. They've covered the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children, twelve to 15,000 people that had taken place. And Peter has just before this text, just moments before this text, Peter was the first human being to ever officially confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And that's where we find our first passage for today. It was immediately after that declaration of Peter's, Luke 9 verse 21 is where we're at. It says, Jesus strictly warned them, hey, don't tell anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and handed over, on the th- and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, the first half of that statement was nothing new for the disciples. They'd heard that lots of times. Jesus was always telling people, hey, that he'd healed, hey, don't go tell anyone yet. And there's a reason for that. Even the disciples aren't supposed to go out and share this aspect of who Jesus is with everyone yet. Why? Well, because Jesus is not done sharing with the disciples exactly what kind of Messiah he is to be. He is not the kind of Messiah that everyone is expecting. So if they go out and start sharing this with everyone, then this news too soon might cause Jesus' ministry to come to a premature end. And obviously Jesus didn't want that to happen. He had to control that element So then Jesus shares with them his ultimate fate. It seems like an odd time for Jesus to just, oh, and by the way, yes, I am the Messiah, and yes, this is what's going to happen to me. He shares with them his entire fate. He's going to be rejected by those in the highest places of Jewish leadership. Now, this is not to be the reality of the Messiah, though, is it? The Messiah was to be this great political, great military leader who came to save God's people. The reality of a suffering servant was not part of the teaching of the day. That wasn't something they were all focused on due to the oppression that they were experiencing. But the Old Testament ancient prophecies, well, they painted quite a different picture of who this Messiah was to be. And that's why we're turning to Isaiah. We reference individually a lot of passages from this, especially this time of year when we get to Easter. We talk a lot about Isaiah chapter 52 because there are so many foreshadowings of who Jesus is and what he did. And we are on the end of that. We know what happened to Jesus or we can read about that. Whereas these people only had those Old Testament prophecies and had no idea how they would be fulfilled. And so we're going to take a moment and read through this entire list in Isaiah 52 and 53 of all of these things that Jesus was to become in some 700 years later. See, my servant will act wisely, beginning in verse 13. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred by human likeness. He will so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. He or silence, yeah. For what they were not told, they will see, what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before them like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that he brought us, that brought us peace, was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered Jesus again, he will see the light of his life and be satisfied By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. And we're not going to take time to break that passage apart. If you need a good passage to just meditate on, study on over the next few weeks as we approach Easter, I want to point you right there, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, and just read through that each day. And remember, this is what our Jesus did for us. In the moment that the disciples lived in, though, this was not the description of a Messiah coming to save the Jewish people from the oppressive hands of the Roman Empire. Not at all. See, this is the description of the Messiah coming to save all people from the oppressive sin that binds each and every one of us to this very day. This is the sin that keeps us from a relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. This is the barrier to receiving His grace and His mercy. This is the obstacle that's in place that keeps us from spending eternity in perfection with our God in heaven. Jesus had to come to deliver them and us in a way that they were not expecting and from something that they didn't even realize they needed freed from. Jesus shares with them the what, the who, and even the why it's going to happen In the verse we just read in chapter 9, verse 22, so that he can ultimately overcome even death itself, letting them, the disciples in that moment, know that he will be raised to life on the third day. So he tells them that. I've reminded you of actually what the Messiah was to do from Isaiah. And now we fast forward about one week, about seven or eight days ahead of that moment. Jesus does the exact same thing. He reminds them of what he just said. It happens in Luke chapter 9, verse 44. He says, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. So it's not like they were ignoring them. He grabbed their tape. Everybody listen up. He shook them a little bit. Listen carefully. Here's what I got to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered over into the hands of men but they didn't understand what he meant, it says. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And we can talk about that fear another time. We did back when we talked about the miracle that's around that moment when Jesus tells them this. But as you can see in this text, the disciples don't have a clue. They don't have any understanding. This is the second time now Jesus has told them exactly what's going to happen, and they don't know. Fast forward a bunch now. We're going all the way to Luke chapter 18. They're almost to Jerusalem. Remember 951? Now, right after that passage I just read, they've resolutely, Jesus resolutely stares at Jerusalem. We're going that way. Nobody's going to stop us. Nothing's going to get in our way. I have a final destination that you don't understand yet, but I have to get there. They're almost to Jerusalem. The disciples have seen more miracles. They've listened to some of the most famous teachings Jesus ever told. Twice now, Jesus has shared with them what will happen when they get to Jerusalem. And so just for fun, maybe the third time will be a charm, right? It's the old expression. The third time's a charm. Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He, or I, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Pretty clear what Jesus is telling them. Verse 34, the disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. (laughs) So no, no, the third time was not a charm. It did not work either. So a lot of people wonder, why would God hide this meaning from the disciples? Wouldn't it have been better if they knew exactly what all was coming their way in the very near future? Well, I'm going to answer the the second question first. (laughs) No, actually, it probably wouldn't be better if they knew exactly what was coming their way for obvious reasons. But in reality, they did know because Jesus has now told them three times exactly what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. They didn't get it. Luke tells us why they didn't get it. Luke writes that the meaning was hidden from them. Now, Luke isn't telling us that God hid the meaning. God purposely distorted their minds so they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. No, no, that's not it. Luke's view is that they were ignorant, meaning they just didn't know. But they did know. Jesus just told them again. So why didn't they understand? Well, their hearts were hard. Their minds were closed. This is what kept them from understanding the truth that Jesus was telling him. You see, their minds were set on Jesus, the king Messiah, Jesus, the political Messiah, Jesus, the conquering Messiah, which, by the way, he is, but not the way they thought. And their thoughts all went to their future as a part of the Messiah they were thinking of's kingdom. What role will we play in his ruling party? Now, This interpretation isn't my own. This is what happens. Jesus actually says these things to them. It's right after the resurrection in Luke 24, verse 25. There, in those passages, Jesus accuses the disciples of being foolish, slow of heart, and closed-minded. Even after the resurrection, remember, they didn't believe he was back. Nothing had changed. They still didn't understand, yet their minds were closed. They didn't get it. They were distracted by their desires and their own plans. Now, let's make this really personal. As I was reading this weeks ago, and as I wrote this weeks ago, I was confronted by this passage with the following question. How many times have I prayed or asked God for something, maybe to know which way to go? or how to help in a certain situation. How many times has God revealed a perfectly wonderful answer to me and I didn't see it? Why didn't I see it? Well, I didn't see it because I actually hid that answer, buried it away, or I closed my eyes because I didn't want to see what God was revealing. I didn't want to go that direction. I had my own plans and my response was, well, God didn't answer my prayer. Oh no, he did. I just wasn't listening The way I needed to. How do we keep that from happening? How do you keep that from happening in your own personal life? I'm going to leave that for you to ponder and think about, has that happened to you? What we're going to do today is we're going to close with a passage that's usually reserved for tomorrow, but it's the next scene in this story. This scene is usually left for what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and next week you'll understand why I moved it up a week. okay? Don't worry, it'll be okay. No, don't throw anything at me, please. All right. Um, on their way to Jerusalem, a couple other things have happened, right? He heals a blind man. he comes across that wee little man named Zacchaeus, yeah, the tax collector, and he reveals his absolute mission statement. It's in Luke 19:10, "For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost." It's an incredible statement of faith, and it's exactly what we should be about as a church. He also shares an incredible story of what a faithful servant looks like, and I can't wait to study that with you later on in our studies of the teachings of Jesus. But as Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem, Luke tells, the, tells us that the people the people that were around Jesus, his followers, his disciples, and remember, there's two groups of disciples here. There's the twelve but then there's also this other bigger group of people that are called disciples that have just been following along with Jesus, listening to his teachings because of the miracles or the teachings, whatever reason, they've just continued to gather. And in Luke 19:11, they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear then. Like, I mean, like now, I mean, like Jesus and his crew are rolling into Jerusalem right now to take over. That's what they thought. And as Jesus taught and he healed on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the people believed this was it. This was the moment. He was heading into Jerusalem to get this party started. So the people were primed and ready for something. Were they primed and ready for a revolt? Was it revolution? Was it a war? You know, we don't know. We don't, we don't know the thinking of the individuals that were following Jesus at that point. That's never really recorded for us. We don't know what they were specifically mentally and emotionally prepared for, but their actions in the scene let us know that they were fully on board for whatever, at least for now. So in Luke 19, verse 28, is where we'll begin this story. It's very familiar to to those of you that might have grown up in the church. If you haven't, then this is a brand new story, and there's all kinds of neat little elements to pick apart in it, but we're not going to be able to do that because that's not our focus today. I would encourage you to do that. Ask questions. Please email us questions. We would love to get with you and answer those specific questions. Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go ahead to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying? it, Just say, the Lord needs it. I would not recommend that strategy today when walking up to someone's house. Hey, I'm going to take your car. I, the Lord needs it. It'll be okay. Don't, Don't do that. Those who were sent went ahead and found it just as he had told them there they were, untying the colts. And guess what? The owners asked, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord needs it. And they were allowed to leave. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest now Luke doesn't record one of the coolest words in all of scripture for whatever reason the most famous word in this scene is the word Hosanna or banana as my daughter said when she was in twos and threes whatever (laughs) this word Hosanna is an interjection it's a really cool word it means save us as Matthew records save us to the son of David The people were ready for Jesus to save them when? Now, right now, which by the way, um, he will still do if you call upon his name right now, (laughs) just so you know. The people then were tired of the oppression of the Romans. They were tired of the oppression of their own leaders. Jesus, save us now. They came out to support him in what they thought would be maybe the revolution that followed once they entered into Jerusalem. This was not a casual parade. The Pharisees noticed what was going on, what was developing in the streets. And some of the Pharisees, they came into the crowd and they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then Jesus says those famous words. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, then the stones will cry out. <laughs> now, they were calling on Jesus to tell his people to stop it. But it was more than just telling them, to, hey, guys, quiet down. Keep it down a little bit, all right? It's a little, getting a little loud out here, a little loud. That wasn't it. It was more than just telling them to stop making a disturbance in the street. You see, the Pharisees were fearful. That this kind of event could get out of control. That Jesus might, in fact, be coming to town to lead a revolt. The people are getting riled up. They're getting excited. Will Jesus go ahead and lead them into Jerusalem to cause a big old ruckus? And if he does, what will the Romans' response to such an uprising be? So, Jesus, you got to stop this, man. You can't let this get out of hand. And that's where Jesus comes up with that best response ever. Yeah, I I could do that, and probably everybody would listen, but, but here's the thing. The people might be quiet, but if they were, the rocks, the stones lining this road would rise up in their place and cry out. Now, if you've been in the church a while, you've heard that passage before, and we talk about it all the time, but I really don't think a single one of us have ever really considered what that would mean. Would it freak you out if the rocks around us all started crying out in our place? Would that disturb you a little bit? Because it should. (laughs) It should mess with you if the rocks are crying out because we aren't. That would be terrible. The rocks shouldn't have to cry out. God could command them to do that. Absolutely, they'd be more than willing, but they shouldn't have to because God's got us. And we should be crying out. We should be reaching out. We should be loving out of this place in such a way that people are drawn to him. Don't let the rocks take your place, people. (laughs) After Jesus passes through that crowd, we don't know who is still with him. It seems like every time until this time that I read this scene, I've always thought in my mind... Here's the road. All the people are between here and here. And once they hit this line, then it's just Jesus and the 12 going past that. It's just those, that little tiny lonely group leaving town. But I'm not sure that's accurate. Because if Jesus just passed through a huge crowd that thinks he's heading into a city to change things forever, don't you think a few people followed along? I kind of think maybe it was more than just Jesus and the 12. Now, we don't know, and there's not a lot of details. Luke is the only one of the Gospels that records this scene, this moment in time. It says, as he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and The children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the heart of Christ. With everything he's about to face, his thinking is actually into the future and the suffering of the people in this city. The people's hearts have not turned to him. They're only seeing what they want to see. They're only hearing what they want to hear. And they are only believing what they think would be best for them their pride, their wealth, their standing, their living, that has closed their eyes so that they don't recognize their Messiah. Their true Messiah is about to make his way into the city to carry out his perfect mission. And all of those cheering crowds will soon transition to a hate-filled mob that because he didn't fulfill their desires, he didn't fulfill their image, their version of the Messiah... They've changed their tune. But the pain goes further for Jesus beyond that moment. As he's literally painting a graphic picture of what will happen to the city of Jerusalem about 40 years later in 70 AD. Literally the Roman Empire will come in. And they will destroy that city in the exact method. And it's brutal if you read about the history of what happened to Jerusalem on that day. So when that precious moment and those tears are shed and they leave and head on into town. What happens next. I'll leave that for next week. For us this morning, our goal through this is, if you are not a believer, is to give you a piece of this Jesus who made this trip, this final trip in Jerusalem to offer up his perfect life on your behalf. And we want to share more of what that means with you Throughout this series or even this very moment today, as I said, he can and still will save you in this moment today. As a believer, we want these things to force you to deal with things you have questions about, to ask questions, to wonder, to dream about things. But we want you to be certain of the things you have been taught. That is our goal because it's truth. We don't have anything to hide. No smoke and mirrors here. Sorry. All going to be laid out front. And so contemplate those things as we go into the next part of our service. Now, I'm reminded, I was reminded this morning, and, and we don't always do a great job of this, and I'll, I'll, I'll take a biggest part of the blame of that. We belong to a kind of congregation that every time we gather, we we bring a, a piece called the loaf and, and, and a little bit of the cup Together. And there are people I know that visit from time to time. There are new attenders, and they've gone. Maybe they grew up in the church, maybe they didn't. If they did grow up into the church, it's likely they didn't go to a church that had what we call communion every Sunday. Very few churches do that. But it's also possible if you didn't grow up in the church, you have no idea what this means at all. And so we thought this morning would be a great morning to just share just a little bit more in depth with you. And so thank you for that question that was asked prior to service. What a teachable moment. What we celebrate here goes all the way back to ancient, ancient, ancient Hebrew nation. When they're in Israel or in Egypt and they're on the precipice of leaving, they're almost ready to leave. Moses is just about to take them out of Egypt and leave slavery behind forever. And God institutes this new thing, this new covenant with them, if you will, at that point in time through this meal, this Passover meal, this Passover celebration, which, by the way, is tied directly to Easter. And in that meal, they, they took a lamb and they sacrificed that perfect spotless lamb. It had to be perfect. No blemishes, no, no ill effects. Everything about it had to be perfect. And that blood was shed and that blood saved the firstborn child, the firstborn male child of all of those families, all those Hebrews. And so fast forward to the time of Jesus. And Jesus, that night before his arrest, He celebrated that Passover meal. But what had been unknown all of those centuries before, Jesus then fully defined for them. Because that festival, that idea was a shadow of the things to come. And Jesus came and he defined for them that true Passover feast and what it represented And so he talked to his disciples as they shared the exact same meal. Jews to this day share the exact same Passover feast that the ancient Hebrew nation celebrated back all the way in Egypt. And as Jesus gathered with his disciples that night and shared that meal with them, toward the end of that meal, he said, Hey guys, here's the thing. I need you to take that bread, that unleavened bread. There was no yeast to be used in that bread. I need you to take that bread and I'm going to show share something with you. That bread is my body. And my body is going to be broken for you. Now, this is before the crucifixion. This is before Jesus died. So all the disciples were sitting on the floor around that table doing this. Huh? No, that's the Passover bread. No, that's just part of that. It's your body. What do you mean, Jesus? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. But he shared that with them. And then after that, a little bit later, wasn't immediately probably, it was a little while later, he passed around the cup of the vine. He said, "Okay, guys, take a drink. And I need you to remember that blood, that wine represents my blood, which was shed, which will be shed, <laughs> future tense in that moment, for you." Now again, they would have been scratching their heads going, "I don't get it. I don't what do you mean your blood shed for us? I don't understand that." His blood will save them and save us from our sins as well. It's an incredible thing. And so this, this little thing, why do we do it every week? Well, in the new Testament, it's, it's asked of us every time we gather together to celebrate this remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me is the famous passage that we quote so very often when we share this together. And so it's very, very important. Nothing wrong with churches that don't celebrate. That's not it. We choose to because we want to take that passage literal to heart. Every time we gather, we want to to break bread and drink of that cup and remember the sacrifice that was made. And so if you're a believer in Christ and you've dedicated your life to him and and you have his spirit within you, this is for you. If you haven't done that yet, this is for you to consider deeply. It's not just a weird-looking chalice with, with, I mean, they're kind of cool, but but it has significance and tremendous purpose in our life. And every time we gather, we get to focus on the sacrifice that was made for us. And so I will just lead you in taking that. If you have that cup, if you forgot it, it's okay. You didn't know why those were sitting there on the way in. We don't have a sign explaining, you know, on the way in. Now you know, and you can grab them in on the way and don't ever hesitate. If you forget, please leave and go get one. I can't tell you how many times I have forgotten them myself um, and had to go back out and get one for myself. All right. So don't hesitate to ever do that. No one will look at you weird if you've got to go get one of these and come back in. All right. So if you have your cup with you, then please go ahead and take the bread out. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice that was made for us. And Father, this simple, simple symbol, which is to represent your body, which was broken for me. May everyone in this room remember that this this is for them. Father, as we consider the pain and the suffering that you went through as your body was, was broken for us, we know the tremendous loss of blood that took place and father from the very beginning it was only through the the shedding of blood that sins could be forgiven and father through your son's blood being shed our sins are forgiven not for the moment but once and for all and so as we consider that reality this morning let us take this cup and remember your blood that was shed for us to cover our sins Father, may we never, ever, ever take this simple act that we we do. Don't ever let it become routine. Don't ever let it be something that we just do. Father, always make this completely personal to each and every one of us. Father, we love you.